Tonight we continue in our series, Ask the Pastor, and this is question number three, uh, something that um, uh, I think uh, has been submitted to us, but I think is uh, a question that many of us have. How does the Bible talk about our money, and specifically, does the New Testament teach tithing? Does the New Testament teach tithing? Uh, so, of course, the tithe is giving of 10% of, of our income, uh, what has traditionally been understood as to the church. Um, but one of the things that makes answering this question difficult kind of comes from uh, some of our, our, our background. We are people who love the Bible. We are people who, when we see something taught in the Bible, uh, sometimes we, we um, are so anxious to apply it to our lives that uh, it's easy to miss some of the, I don't know, the topography of the Bible, the, the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so I'm just going to go ahead and give you the answer to the question first and then do a lot of explaining. Uh, and by the way, uh, there, is, uh, there, there is a little bit of I'm a little uncomfortable to give you the answer to this question because uh, uh, my income depends on uh, how we understand this. <laughs> the answer to the question, does the New Testament teach tithing? The answer is no, but there's an asterisk there. And the way that I'm trying to answer or fill out that little asterisk is three pages long. So I'm going to do the best that I can tonight uh, to show how the Bible teaches this um, and how it doesn't. Uh, so when we're, when we're answering these questions, we have to really kind of step back for a second and, and answer some of the questions before the question, which is how do we relate to the things that the Old Testament teaches? How do we relate to the things that the Old Testament teaches? And how great is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? We have, and John, we're good, everything's, okay, okay. Um, we have this sense that not everything that we read in the Old Testament is for today. But we know that some of it is, right? Where we struggle is figuring out exactly where those lines fall. And how can we relate to the Old Testament in a consistent way such that we're not just picking and choosing what we like and what we don't like, right? Because it's easy if there's something in the Old Testament that we don't like or that makes us uncomfortable, it's easy for us to just say, well, that's just Old Covenant, you know. Uh, but sometimes um, it endures. So we have this sense that certain things are supposed to endure from the Old Testament to today, and then sometimes we have this sense that some things have passed away and are no longer uh, in force. Let's try to recognize a couple of principles here. If you look at the second, if you look at the second little hash mark way up at the top under background, in fact, this very misunderstanding between the, the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, is one reason why those opponents of the Bible's teaching on, for instance, human sexuality or any other of the moral law, they claim that the Old Testament references to sexual practice are no longer binding since we clearly don't 
obey the rest of the Old Testament. Who, who are you to, to bring up passages from the Old Testament to talk about morality? I thought, I, I see that you're wearing a shirt that has two different color fibers, and that's prohibited in the Old Testament. Or I see that you were down at Red Lobster eating shellfish, and wasn't that you know, prohibited in the Old Testament? You're just picking and choosing whatever you want to believe about the Old Testament. How you know, you're, you're a hypocrite. Um, we have to parse out the Old Testament, and I, I think I've tried to just really, in a crash course way, give a couple of these principles. Number one, how we can parse out the Old Testament law is to remember this, that much of the Old Testament law gave directions for how a unique nation, Israel, that was devoted to God, was to conduct itself. Let's remember, some of the laws were moral for all time. Some were ceremonial relating to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And some were judicial. How this one nation that God had set up for a period of time was supposed to settle its own internal problems. So we have these three categories, a moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law. These second two, the ceremonial and the judicial laws, were unique to Israel. They were unique to the people, the Old Testament people of Israel. They were supposed to set that nation apart. Now we know that the ceremonial laws are completely gone because the ceremonial system has been replaced by the one, by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's why we don't kill animal sacrifices here on our worship services on Sunday mornings, right? That has passed away. Christ is the one true sacrifice. So we have this sense that certain things have passed away, but other things endure. We would, none of us would say, by the way, that um, the Bible saying that murder being evil was something that passed away because that's Old Testament. None of us would say that. And many people, and no, surely no opponent of the gospel would say that either. Either. Number two, the moral laws of God are demonstrated from the creation ordinances and in the Decalogue, which is just the Ten Commandments. In other words, they are the things that can be observed from nature in light of the revelation of God and through the special revelation of the Bible. The Bible has given us teaching on how to interpret the world that we see. If we look at the world and try to interpret our lives simply by what we see without the enlightenment of God through the Bible, we will just end up with atheistic or naturalistic conclusions. But our charge as believers is to interpret the world that we see through the lens of the Bible. In other words, um, these moral laws are true for all time and can be imported from the Old Testament to today. I gave you a little quiz. I don't know if you remember these from school, but here's a little matching game. I put it down at the bottom. I'm going to read to you three passages of Scripture from the Old Testament. And if you have a pen, you could just try to draw a line from the Bible verse to which category it fits in. Does it fit in the ceremonial law, which deals with the sacrifices? Does it deal with the moral law, which is true for all time, never passes away, God determines what it is, or the judicial law, which would just deal with how the people of Israel are supposed to handle their 
um, their problems. Let's start off with an, with an easy one. Thou shall not murder. Moral law. That's in the moral law. Exodus 20, 13. Uh, secondly, I'll read Exodus 21, 12 through 14. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Which one do you think that is? Judicial law. It's a judicial law. Hey, John, could you, could you grab her a paper, please? Thank you, brother. And then, of course, by process of elimination, we just have one left, but I'm going to read it to you so that we can see uh, the differences. This shall be the law. This comes from Leviticus. Um, this shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. And if the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed um, two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. So, clearly, that last one is the ceremonial law. How can a leper be made ceremonially clean to come into the presence of God? Now, lest you think these others have passed away and just have no, uh, have no purpose at all, the reality is even the ceremonial law and even the judicial law are here to teach us things. The judicial law tells us that God is a God of order. The ceremonial law, I mean, think about, think about the, the woman, think about this. In, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, there are prohibitions. In other words, it is, it is off limits for a woman who has an, an issue of blood to come in to the temple. She's ceremonially unclean. And then who does Jesus cleanse in the New Testament but a woman with an issue of blood? See, that ceremonial law was put there in the Old Testament to show us, to, to just put the ball up on the tee for Jesus to, to absolutely hammer it in the, in the New Testament to show that those who ought not be able to approach God have been made able to approach God through Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful truth? Same thing happens with the leper. In, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament talks about how the lepers can't go into the, can't go into the, the sanctuary and in the New Testament, it seems like every gospel you look at, Jesus is healing a leper, making him clean, which is just a picture for how he cleans us so that we can be made approachable. In the Old Testament, it was a matter of actually going into the temple. In the New Testament, it's about us who have a deeper leprosy called sin. And we can't go into God's temple, heaven, unless that sin has been cleansed. All of these things show us that there is a, a deeper meaning behind these. This is why it's so important to understand the differences between the moral, ceremonial, and judicial law. Otherwise, we'll just open our Bibles up to Leviticus and read, you know, 
if your ox gores another man and, you know, you need to do this and pay it back and, and, you know, or an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we just have this very flat reading of the Bible that doesn't take into account what God is doing in Leviticus versus Mark. Does that make sense? I want to show you a video clip of two people, uh, President uh, Bartlett from the West Wing and uh, somebody else that he's having a little conflict with. Neither one of them understand the difference between the moral, judicial, and ceremonial law. Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Can y'all hear that okay? more than a few minutes with you, but the polls don't close in the East for another hour. There are plenty of election results still left to falsify. <laughs> you know, with so many people participating in the political and social debate through call-in shows, it's a good idea to be reminded every once in a while. <clears throat> it's a good idea to be reminded of the awesome impact. The awesome impact. I'm sorry. Uh, you're Dr. Jenna Jacobs, right? Yes, sir. Good to have you here. Thank you. The awesome impact of the airwaves and how that translates into the furthering of our national discussions, but obviously also how it can, how it can, forgive me, Dr. Jacobs, are you an MD? A PhD. A PhD. Yes, sir. In psychology? No, sir. Theology? No. Social work? I have a PhD in English literature. I'm asking because on your show people call in for advice and you go by the name Dr. Jacobs on your show and I didn't know if maybe your listeners were confused by that and assumed you had advanced training in psychology, theology, or healthcare. I don't believe they are confused, no sir. Good. I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. Yes, it does. Leviticus. 18.22. Chapter and verse. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions while I had you here. I'm interested in selling my youngest daughter into slavery, as sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. She's a Georgetown sophomore, speaks fluent Italian, always cleared the table when it was her turn. What would a good price for her be? While thinking about that, can I ask another? My chief of staff, Leo McGarry, insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself, or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important, because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean, Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? One last thing. Well, you may be mistaking this for your monthly meeting of the ignorant club. In this building, when the president stands, nobody sits. Thanks, John. So, uh, while what may seem like a slam dunk on uh, on uh, primetime television, hopefully, just this little discursus on the difference between the moral, ceremonial, and judicial law has given us 
little bit of handles to try to understand how we, we can bring in the Old Testament into today. Um, I did have to edit that video just a little bit to make it church appropriate. But um, anyway, um, how does all this relate to the tithe? Well, the, the reason is because many times in the Old Testament, even when something is taught that we would understand to have passed away, there are still principles that come through into the New Testament, just like that principle of cleanness and uncleanness, right? We understand that our major problem is not whether we have open sores on our skin. That the principle is we are unclean because we are sinners, and we need to be made clean. So the principle of uncleanness comes into the New Testament. Uh, what about the tithe? I want to read to you from Malachi 3.8. And just in God's providence, this was in our Sunday school lesson this morning. And so um, I'm going to read this from Malachi 3.8 as it talks about... This is kind of one of the clobber passages or one of the, you know, the... I don't know. Uh, you you may, uh, may have heard growing up. I know I heard sermons. That, that went like this. Malachi 3.8 says, Don't rob from God. Bring the tithe into the storehouse. Therefore, pay 10% to the church or something like that. And that was just kind of the end of the story. A very flat reading of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's read this together. For I, the Lord, do not change. And we know that to be true. Therefore, you, old children of Jacob, note who he's talking to, children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Shall man, uh, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not open the windows of heaven. I'm sorry. And if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer from you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear says the Lord of hosts then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts so Malachi 3:8 clearly teaches is one of the passages that teaches the Old Testament tithe you want to know the reality though the reality is this was only a piece of what the people were supposed to do we see in the Bible, if you look in the rest of the Bible, there was the regular tithe, which we just saw in Malachi 3, which was 10% of one's income. Deuteronomy 14.22 says this was for the priests to keep the temple going. Secondly, there was the poor tithe, though. Deuteronomy 14.28, it was paid every other year. Thirdly, there was the rejoicing tithe. This is taught in Deuteronomy 14, and it occurred on years that alternated from the poor tithe. So you still had one every year, basically. And then number four, there were the portions of grain. So not only was there income, there were grain, like actual, had to bring it in from the fields in Leviticus 2 and Leviticus 7. And then there was the census tax. However often, I suppose, the census came around, Exodus 30. The upshot of all this is that we see that the regular tithe was just a fraction of the total expected amount. The real, I guess you could call the effective tax rate of God, 
the tithes average to around 15 or even as much as 18% a year. Here's the problem. The tithe in the Old Testament seems to be connected to the operation of the Old Testament sacrificial system, doesn't it? They were supposed to bring the tithe into the storehouse for the temple so that the temple structure could continue to operate. But we know that temple structure is gone because Jesus did everything that we needed for him to do. I promise I'm not trying to work myself out of a, out of a job. Does this mean then that the tithe would actually today be a sin? After all, why would we tithe if we aren't ready to sacrifice animals? How does the New Testament answer this? Well, here are some principles that we can use to get toward an answer. Here's some steps. We need to find the remaining principle. I, I talked to you earlier about how this works. The, the Old Testament ceremonial laws and the, and the judicial laws were there to teach us something. Like the, the lepers were cleansed. That's a picture of our sin. It needs to be cleansed. And the woman with the issue of blood, she's healed, which pictures our healing that the cross gives us. Um, we see, so, so we need to find whatever the remaining principle is and pull it out. We also need, need to apply it through the lens of the new covenant. So let's remember what the old covenant was. The old covenant was a covenant of things that people were supposed to do in obedience to God. The law, remember the Ten Commandments? They were inscribed on stone. They were written outside of the person. What does Jeremiah 31 say? Jeremiah 31 talks about a time when the law will no longer be written on stones outside of people, but that God would actually write His law on the hearts of His people. We think that there's great benefit in having a list of rules outside of us, but really the only thing that can change human behavior is to have a changed heart. And that's what God came to do in Jesus. That's what the new covenant is about. The, old, the reason that we look in the Old Testament and see the people failing all the time is because they didn't have a heart to do what they needed to do, which just showed their need for Jesus to come and give them what we know as the new birth. They needed to be born again. Deuteronomy 10, let's, I just want to give you a little snapshot of this. Deuteronomy 10, if you, if, you, if you watch how Deuteronomy develops, it's almost like Deuteronomy is here to put a big mirror in front of the people to show them that they can't do what God is telling them to do so that they will run to God for a Savior. They'll yearn for a Savior. Look at this. Deuteronomy 10, God says, Obey my laws and change your heart. He actually says, Circumcise your own heart. Deuteronomy 20, 29, God comes back and says, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And then in Deuteronomy 30, toward the end of the book, God says, I will change your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Deuteronomy is just one big mirror. God gives a bunch of commands. The people can't fulfill the commands. God says, you know why you can't fulfill the commands? Because you need the new birth, and I will send it. I will send it in Jesus Christ, is what Deuteronomy says in just a short little 
30-second snapshot. Listen to how Jeremiah talks about this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. We might say from this morning in Titus, we would be God's purified possession. I will be their God, they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, knows you won't even need to go out and knock on doors and evangelize anymore. For every, They will know me. They will know the Lord. All will know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So what we learn about the new covenant is this. The new covenant, which is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is about having new hearts instead of checking off ritualistic boxes. See the differences there? Now, what is the principle that endures from the Old Testament? It's true that I don't believe the tithe is taught as it was in the Old Testament. But there is a principle that continues to today. And that principle is this. Sacrificial generosity. Sacrificial generosity. In other words, here's the thing. I think we get worried if we start saying that the Bible doesn't teach the tithe, maybe people will quit giving. The reality is we don't need people giving because they think they have to to please God. We need people giving because they are thankful for what God has done and they have changed hearts. We don't want people to give because they feel like they have to earn favor with God. We want people to give because they want to. Because they're thankful for what the gospel did for them. Does that make sense? When we put all this together, what we get is a New Testament principle of sacrificial giving. The New Testament, I'm quoting somebody here. I didn't footnote them, so don't you know, report me for plagiarism. The New Testament does not explicitly require the tithe, although it says much about giving. The Bible talks about money a whole lot. Why? Because money's a window into our hearts. What do we love? Well, get online and see what you've been spending money on. That's, that's what we love. The New Testament, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, says that giving is supposed to be voluntary and generous. It doesn't put a number on it. It gives a principle. It says your heart needs to motivate it. In Acts chapter 4, we see believers there selling property and providing for one another's needs. See that? In Matthew 6 and also in Luke 12, Jesus tells his disciples to lay up treasures in heaven instead of investing in this life and building bigger barns. He also reminds them that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Luke 12, Matthew 6. See, here's... If I'm trying to write it out in a statement, I, I did. I wrote it out. I'm going to try to, I'm just going to read this to you and then give you a, just a personal testimony. While the 10% rule is not explicitly commanded in the New Testament, 
the principles of sacrifice and generosity remain from the Old Testament. Furthermore, generosity for the New Testament believers should only be accelerated because we're no longer under the law but under grace. You could even make an argument. It's like, wait a second. If 10% was what they were supposed to give because they had to, how much should we give because now we're under grace? In short, how we handle our money is a key window into whether heart change has occurred or not. If we genuinely grasp the New Testament and the generosity God showed us in the gospel, we will want to be generous. We'll want to fund kingdom things so that we can see other people come to Christ. This generosity will not come from compulsion. I have to. It'll come from desire. I want to because of a new heart. I want to give you a a testimony. Um, You know, there was a... When Whitney and I first got married, we were were blessed with a number of things. But we resolved at the beginning of our marriage to, um, to, you know, to give 10%. That's just what we thought we, we should do. And so we did. For a number of years, uh, we, we gave that amount even when we didn't, we didn't have much. We probably could have been putting back a lot more for a vehicle or for retirement or, or whatever the case may be, preparing for a family. Uh, but we, 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 we felt convicted that that's what we should do. And, uh, and then we, we encountered a season where um, you know, we had health problems, we had um, loss of a job, different things like that. And things were really tight. And every month, uh, we were dipping into our savings just in order to, to make ends meet, you know. Which means that if we were going to give anything at all to the Lord or to our local church that we were members of at the time, it means it was not going to come out of our checking account. It was going to come out of our savings account, you know, our backstop. And during that time, we didn't give all the way up to 10%. But we made sure that we were giving sacrificially. I don't understand myself to have been sinning in that season of our life. We thought that we needed to give in such a way that it hurt. It needed to be sacrificial and it needed to be generous. And so we kept giving. And you you know why? It's because we knew that the only reason we had a savings account was because God had been kind to us. So why shouldn't we? It's God's money in the first place. He's the one that allowed us to have a backstop. And so we dipped out of that even when we were running in the red every month. I'm not saying that to put us up on a pedestal. I'm actually confessing to you that for that season we were not able to give what we thought we should. But the Lord was faithful before that time The Lord was faithful during that time, and the Lord was faithful after that time. I don't believe the stuff that these prosperity gospel preachers teach, that if you just give to God, oh, he's going to bless you and give you the Bugattis and the the cars and the kids, and you're going to get a promotion at work if you'll just sow a seed into my ministry and get the little green prayer cloth. We'll send it to you in the mail, and it'll be anointed with water that we sprinkled from the Jordan River, whatever whatever they say. But I will say this that the Lord loves his people 
And he sees sacrifices that we make in secret. And he honors those. And the Bible says, I have never seen God's children begging for bread. And so just as a word of personal testimony, that's how I understand the tithe to work. I think that 10% is a good place to start. And, um, and that's what I would encourage anyone else to do. Uh, but the principle, so that we're not being dogmatic or legalistic, the principle is whatever is a sacrifice and whatever is generous and motivated from a heart that's been changed by Jesus. So that's the best answer that I can give for that question. Probably should have prepared you this just so that you can be thinking of things. But if you have any questions that kind of come from that, um, I'll entertain those right now. Yes, ma'am, Miss Beth. Yeah. Miss Beth has two questions. I want to try to answer them in turn. The first question has to do with, um, um, or the first comment she made has to do with uh, this this uh, tithing or giving of of our time and our talents as well as our treasure. Okay, and that's a good principle, I think, because I think we are supposed to to sacrifice in the area of our time, in the area of our energy and resources. The only thing that I would caution from, uh, that I would caution about that, is I think that it's possible for some people, because their treasure is really with their money, and they don't want to let go of that, it's like, well, I, I give of my time. You know what I'm saying? And it can be a sneaky little way to justify not obeying God in, in, another, in another way. And so I think that's true, um, but I would also put a little asterisk by there. Her second question has to do with, we know in Judaism uh, that, you know, we, we don't know of many Jews who are still sacrificing things at the temple today. Uh, why, when did that stop? And I just don't know the answer to that. I know a guy that I could ask. Um, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. That's a really good question. I've wondered that myself and then got distracted and went on to something else. Yeah, it's a good question. Other questions? Okay. Okay. 
Gotcha. Yeah, uh, basically, um, President Bartlett confronted this lady who had a, a radio show, and, uh, you know, she, she herself had a very kind of flat view of the Bible that she was uh, portraying, but it dealt with the moral law, uh, the issue of human sexuality. And then so he was basically bringing up, because he also had a very flat view of the Old Testament, he was bringing up other things in, in the Old Testament that seem absurd to us today to say that that also is absurd, that the, the Bible's moral teachings are absurd because some of the ceremonial things uh, don't make sense to us today. That was kind of the point of that. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes. You know, honestly, Miss Jane, I don't know all of what's going on there. I would have to look at it a little closely, but I think what Jesus is doing there is very slick. Because you think about it, they have this they have this understanding of cleanness and that that they need to fulfill. And here Jesus actually heals the guy of his leprosy. And he says, hey, go to the priest and give him that, give him that offering while you're there. You know, I mean, it's, it's just super clever because, you know, here the guy, the, the leper who should not be ceremonially clean has been healed of his disease. And, he, and Jesus sends the guy to the temple basically between the lines to say, the fix is in. Like, the fix to this problem is here, and I've seen the guy who is the fix, and his name's Jesus. Uh, beautiful little, good catch, good catch there. Any other questions before we wrap up? All right, why don't, uh, why don't I pray, and then we've got one more song, I believe, and we will be concluded. Let's pray together.